0: Hello there, and welcome to Peace In Their Time, Episode 6, Buyer's Remorse. Today we'll be covering Italy's underperformance in World War I, plus the immediate political and social aftermath. So the Italians are in the Great War. Now what? Well, that's probably the very same question a lot of people asked at the time. Of course, the army hadn't been properly mobilized yet which shouldn't be surprising given the political skullduggery needed to actually sneak the country into the war. And while the Austrians had been getting knocked around by the Russians at that moment, they had enough time to scramble some troops over to the Alpine border. What followed is probably one of the more dispiriting campaigns in military history. The Italians managed to maintain a 3-to-1 superiority in troops against the Central Powers in their little sector throughout the war, but found themselves advancing into mountains and hills while under fire from modern artillery and machine guns. Imagine going for a very rocky hike while getting shot at, and that's the Italian front. From 1915 to 1917, the front line barely moved, and not for a lack of trying. The River Isonzo became infamous for having not one, not two, not three, but eleven battles fought in its vicinity. And that was attacking across the most favorable terrain of the front, which was still a hilly, elevated mess. But elsewhere, it was pure Alps. Freezing mountains, sheer drop-offs, avalanches. These were all daily threats. I mean, hell, we're still finding soldiers frozen up there in those mountains. Now, I really super swear that I don't want to get bogged down in Italy's World War I military history. But as Italy enters its third year of war, something happens that kind of forces a psychotic break that goes a long way to explaining why fascism becomes a thing in Italy. It's called the Battle of Caporetto. In the back half of 1917, the Austrians were starting to feel the strain on the Italian front, and the Germans, fresh off their victories on the Eastern front, had troops to spare all of a sudden. So, some men got shuffled south, and on October 24th, 1917, the Central Powers went on the offensive on the Isonzo Sector. The Italians, for their part, were exhausted after 11 pitched battles over the past two years. After a week of fighting, the Italian army shattered, and their enemies were suddenly in hot pursuit, with only the Central Powers' own exhaustion and lack of supplies halting the advance along the Pieve River just to the northeast of Venice. All told, 10,000 Italians were dead, Tens of thousands more were wounded, and an embarrassing quarter million soldiers were taken prisoner. An enterprising German lieutenant named Erwin Rommel made a name for himself here, with his unit of a couple hundred soldiers taking over 20,000 prisoners during the fighting. A third of the Italian army was taken off the board, along with all their equipment. The remaining troops weren't in such great shape either. Hundreds of thousands of Italian soldiers went AWOL and scattered into the surrounding area. Most were eventually rounded up and returned to service, but they weren't of a big help during the attempts to stem the immediate tide. And yeah, the invaders were stopped, but Italy had to suffer the further indignity of 11 French and British divisions moving into the country as reinforcements. Given the Italians had just one front to worry about, this bailout wounded their pride considerably. There is a silver lining to this disaster, though. The sheer magnitude of the debacle sprung the country into an action that nobody, including the Italians themselves, could have imagined. The immediate blow provoked a national panic that probably would be familiar to Americans with memories of Pearl Harbor or 9 11. Whereas before the people were sharply divided about fighting the war in the first place, the prospect of a full Austrian invasion united all the various factions together. Yet the slaughter up to this point had been senseless, but nobody was willing to let their country get totally hosed by the Habsburgs. Keep in mind, too, that the battle took place over just two weeks and basically incapacitated the entire army, so the national shock was very warranted. It was unlike anything the young nation had ever suffered to this point, and the suddenly desperate times called for even more expeditiously applied measures. And the Italian government, oddly enough, didn't shrink or stumble from the awesome new responsibility of dragging the country from the abyss. Replacements were called up to rebuild the army, every effort was made to corral the deserting soldiers, industry and infrastructure were brought under closer state management, every bit of slack in the economy that was not being utilized for the war was redirected to the fight, and propaganda took on a tone of apocalyptic confrontation. One more Caporetto, it is feared, would end the Italian nation. And lo and behold, It worked. The army pulled itself back together and the home front redoubled its efforts. Before, there had not been a defining national narrative. The Austrians had been the defenders, and the politicians were unwilling to admit that all the fighting was purely for a land grab. But avenging Caporetto and expelling the Austrians gave the Italians what they had lacked before a simple and concrete national story. The pieces of the nation were finally bound together into, dare I say, A fasci. The nation was bloodied, and nothing about its imperfections had even begun to be addressed. But from this moment through the years' time it would take to the end of the war, they were in it together, and that was something the nation had never before truly enjoyed. And it was a feeling that did not go uncommented upon at the time either. All through late 1917 and 1918, the single minded drive of the Italian people astonished themselves. Their nation had been openly complacent and corrupt, but now it was rejuvenating itself in record time. The reason why I emphasize this singular experience from World War I is because the subordination of the individual to the nation, the militarization of society, and the unlimited government power were all going to be key components of the future fascist ideology. Mussolini's entire movement was predicated on recapturing this national moment and to make it a permanent state of existence and you could almost justify the feeling. The months passed and the autumn of of 1917 turned to 1918, and the fortunes of war changed for the better. The Central Powers could not spare an offensive on a front as marginal as Italy, and so an entire year was able to pass without further incident as Italy rebuilt itself. Then, at the eleventh hour, the time finally came to strike back. By October 1918, Both of the empires comprising the primary central powers were in freefall, revolution was tearing their empires to pieces, and their armies were disintegrating in the field. It was now that the rebuilt Italian army struck. The Austrians by this point had no fight left in them and simply gave way. Their troops were starving, and they could plainly see that the Entente weren't going to be losing the war. The lines were restored to their positions from a year previous, and then pushed still further. There was a great final victory at the Battle of Vittorio Veneto, and Trieste finally fell. It wasn't long before the armistice was declared and the fighting was over, which unfortunately was going to bring fresh troubles. Now, why would hostilities signal new trouble? Because the world had changed since Italy had joined the Entente back in 1915. Now that the war was over, the decision had to be made on what kind of peace was to be made. And Italy? For all its sacrifices, did not rate when it came to deciding the final peace. Now, the United States was among the victorious powers, which just three years prior could not have been counted on. And now, the American president, Woodrow Wilson, was in prime position to decide how punishment to the fallen would be doled out. Too bad for Italy, and for all the people who suffered and died. Things that they had fought for would not materialize, And the rage of this disappointment would echo down the years. Creating the field from which the monsters of the coming years would spring forth from. Wilson was not interested in a traditional peace. He wanted a new one, one without the backbiting and the vendetta justice. It would be based on nationality, at least in Europe, and would frown on land grabs elsewhere. Which meant that peace negotiations almost immediately went off the rails for Italy. The 1915 Treaty of London was disregarded. Italy would indeed get southern Tyrol and it would get the Istrian peninsula, but these were mere fragments. And given the extensive Italian nationals who lived in these areas, they were also kind of a gibbon. They were expectations, not prizes. No, the prizes further abroad that Italy had staked its hopes on becoming a true world power would be denied. The promises in Africa would be hilariously disregarded as Britain and France feasted on the former German colonies and the easy pickings in the Arab world would be denied by the two powers in much the same manner. There was a short window for them to make a grab for part of Anatolia, but the Turks managed to rally before anything could come of that idea. Not wanting a distant and challenging war, Italy withdrew its interest there. And so now, there was only the case of Dalmatia. Strictly speaking, only the northern half had been promised, but at the end of the day, it was all going to the new state of Yugoslavia. This, uh, this did not go over quite well. That This didn't sit well because when the war wound down and the armistice was declared, there was euphoria, pure, idealistic euphoria among the Italian citizens. The slaughter was over and all the sacrifices would be proven worthwhile. The promises of the Treaty of London had initially been kept secret, but when the Bolsheviks took over St. Petersburg in 1917, they published every secret treaty they could get their hands on. So by this time, there were public expectations to be met. The public believed the victorious powers would act as one, and the rewards would be doled out fairly. And in the end, every mother who lost a son would be able to hold her head high that the sacrifice had been worth it. The nation would be able to hold its head high and know that the sacrifice had been worth it. But it was not to be and in the peace of Versailles over the course of six months, those hopes of justice were reduced down to nothing. The dreams of an Adriatic empire came to naught, and the Italian delegation to Paris withdrew back home in protest, as one demand after another was ignored. Salandra, the man who had led the nation into war, was roundly embarrassed that all his maneuvering back in 1915 had fallen through so publicly. The sudden withdrawal of the Italian delegation from the peace process only made things worse. Before, there was at least the illusion of the powers paying heed to Italy's position. But once they stormed off in a huff, well, the gloves were off, and there was no longer any reason for pretending. The treaty was drawn up, and the Italians had to limp back north to meekly sign the peace they had not fully acceded to. It was really bad optics for the government. Now, Italy was forced to reckon with all the ghosts of the war with few of the spoils. All that sacrifice? All that panic and appealing to a final victory, it won very little in the end. And that vast empty void was what the nation was left with at the end of the war. The euphoria wore off, and a much more dangerous feeling set in. The nation was racked with problems after their now questionable victory. In fighting the war, vast numbers of loans had been taken out, and taxes actually were not raised in order to appease the upper class. The slavish devotion to the country's elites meant that even in the most desperate hours, the government could not stomach an increase in their contributions, unlike, say, Britain and Germany. As a result, the purely public debt was dangerously large and would not shrink in the immediate aftermath of the war. Inflation had already been building through the war years as spending accelerated and the nation clawed its way from disaster. Now, to win the war, the Italian government had not just become a draconian regime from a young adult dystopian novel. It also made a boatload of promises for some time in the future to drive its people forward. The most important, mainly because it was a promise actually fulfilled, is, was the passing of universal male suffrage for everyone over 21 in 1918. Beforehand, it had only applied to those 30 and over, or with money or property restrictions for those younger. Now, a much larger population base, including many of the soldiers and workers who had made the victory possible, were going to be represented in Italian politics. Remember last episode when I discussed how the first round of universal male suffrage put a lot of the proletariat into the political arena? Well, this this just put another fuel canister close to the fires of social discord. This is also a convenient time as political life in the country had been muted during the war years and especially during the panic days of 1918. Now, people were going to start getting active again. Italy had also promised many of the soldiers that fighting in the war would guarantee them a small farmstead as compensation for their sacrifices on the front lines, a reward that oddly echoes similar promises made to soldiers in the Roman legions during ancient ancient times. And just like in ancient times, the government in Rome found that coming up with arable land to dole out to its veterans was way easier said than done. There was also the promise that Italy would make those large territorial gains, and while the public certainly wasn't interested in fighting new colonial wars, the sense of humiliation of being taken for granted by the other great powers was palpable among the newly enlarged voting population. And then there were the economic issues. The politicians promised prosperity and enhanced access to education for a populace that wasn't just backward compared to its neighbors, It was very self-aware about its own backwardness, and they failed to make good on those promises. The people weren't happy about it, and now a lot more got to vote about it. This all meant that despite the peace, there wasn't any going back to the business-as-usual politics of the pre-war period. The intense burst of effort during the war years entailed that much of the population that had been unengaged on the national scene before the war now saw themselves as having a stake in the direction of the country. And for those who already demanded to have their voices heard before all the violence? Well, now they were emboldened to an even greater degree. The socialists had been a rising tide through much of northern Italy before the war, and the demands of the conflict made their message very receptive in the industrialized north. The intense production drives to support the war effort brought more and more laborers into the factories, and the masses turned out for the ideology of the proletariat. Moreover, The socialists now had the example of the Russian Revolution to to inspire them. The autocrats and bourgeois had been successfully thrown down in one of the most backwards economies in Europe. Who was to say that Italy couldn't match such a feat? The euphoric feeling among the citizenry had gone beyond simply hoping things will get better slightly. No, after the stresses of the war, the average person was convinced that things weren't just going to get better, but life would change all out of proportion. The country would modernize, it would take an equal seat among the great right powers, and the politics as usual culture would be a thing of the past. And if the old order got in the way, well, God help them. This initial burst of joy had been referred to as 1919ism, a feeling of anything being possible. Which meant that when the expected changes did not materialize, That just made the bitterness and disappointment all the worse, and conditions would decline only still further. I mentioned that to fund the war, Italy had declined to raise the income tax, mostly because those with money controlled the government and ergo didn't want to pay in. This wasn't a common policy taken by nations in a war of that size, aside from France, which, oh boy, will we ever get into, as they will have many of the same issues. Instead. They took out loans and sold bonds, which is also something everybody else did, but Italy had to rely on them more than most others. The taking on of debt caused a cycle of inflation that proved crippling for the nation. With more money in the market, prices saw a corresponding rise. This included basics like food, clothing, and the like. This had a double whammy effect of also making the existing wages of workers suddenly become less valuable too. Just because prices go up doesn't automatically mean that a worker's income increases. Oh yeah, remember those war bonds I mentioned? Well, a lot of people sunk a lot of their savings into them, partly out of patriotic reasons and partly because it was a guaranteed investment. War bonds, for the uninitiated, are issued by governments as a means to raise debt. The government offers bonds at, say, $10 apiece, with a promise to pay out $20 down the road. But of course, with the Italian currency, the lira, Now, being worth a lot less when it came time to make good on the bonds, the people were finding that they were actually losing money. Getting twice as much lira back as you initially put into the bond isn't that great when commodity costs quadruple in the meantime. So now you also have a population that went all in on their country in a fever of patriotism, only to get screwed over by a distinctly unpatriotic wave of inflation. Plus, anybody who had savings got hit. All that money they stowed away it became worth a whole lot less real fast. Naturally, people were furious, and as food shortages started to kick in, they were getting hungry too. That isn't to say there weren't those who didn't benefit at least a little, and as you might imagine, these weren't exactly the most popular kinds of people at the time. The government certainly came out ahead, as now all those debts that had to be paid back were worth a whole lot less. And that principle extends to pretty much anybody who might have held debt as well problem is, though, that most people who might have had extensive access to the banking and financial system in order to actually take on a decent amount of debt were people that were already on the upper crust of society, or at least decently close to it. The reason why banks love businessmen and property owners is because they take out debt as a matter of course to help expand or maintain their operations. Landless peasants working somebody else's estate or an apartment-dwelling factory worker? Not so much. The banks didn't like the plebs too much. All this gave rise to what became known as the Bieno Rosso, or the Red Two Years. Starting in July 1919, the national hunger, and I mean that literally, had gotten to the point where trouble started breaking out. In Bologna, riots started, which quickly spread all across the country, Workers went on strike demanding food, which eventually forced sellers to cut down on the inflated prices to levels that ordinary people wouldn't starve on. And once people started striking and rioting, well, they weren't going to stop while still resting on a knife's edge between complete destitution and purely normal poverty. Local governments were going to be overburdened in almost every major city, especially those further up north, and were going to have to deal with constant agitation from the socialists, encouraging workers of all stripes to fight against those controlling the economic levers of power. The promise of a new era gave rise to a counter to socialism as well. Like a terrible shadow, at first indistinct and somewhat insubstantial, the fascist movement made its debut on March 23, 1919. The organization had existed before, during the war years, But it was at this stage it went from being a pro-war nationalist group that had mostly engaged in the odd street battle against leftists and changed into a more coherent national force. It is here that Benito Mussolini made his debut on the Italian stage. A failed school teacher turned socialist journalist, he now emerged as the ostensible leader of this new ideology. I'll get more in-depth into Mussolini's background and personality in the inevitable biography episode. But long story short, He saw himself, and by extension his followers, as a direct rebuke to the divisive class warfare and unpatriotic sentiments of the socialists, as well as the fecklessness of the liberal order. The initial members of the movement, the so-called fascists of the first hour, were few in number, and maybe only a few hundred people actually turned out in Milan to hear Mussolini's announcements. And in that small group, there was a wild divergency in beliefs and political opinion. But that eclectic group of outsiders and misfits would come to coalesce into the initial leadership of the fascist movement, and were committed to the belief that extreme action was not just allowable, but was necessary. One other new political group I'll introduce will prove to be one of the more frustrating and ephemeral of the next few years. For years, the papacy had urged the Catholic Church in Italy to not participate in politics and those who were ardent Catholics to refrain as well as a basis of their faith. This was due to the popes never fully reconciling themselves to the new Italian nation and the loss of their previously substantial territorial base. But by 1919, the socialists were growing in popularity at an alarming rate, and Pope Benedict XV was fearful of an atheistic political movement rising to supremacy in the papal homelands. And so, in January 1919, the Italian People's Party, or the PPI, was founded. The party had a straightforward enough platform, encouraging the Christian view of democracy, namely preserving existing social orders and traditions, while at the same time being generous enough to ensure the majority of the population didn't wallow in penury. The reason why I initially mentioned that the movement was frustrating is that it mostly formed with an additional mission statement of keeping the peace in the country's politics. It was not a party with an eye towards genuine leadership, and typically looked towards the traditional liberals to form a government. Given that the future electoral successes of the PPI would mean that the party greatly outperformed those liberals, it will create the awkward parliamentary situation of a victorious party asking a comparatively unsuccessful faction to lead on its behalf. Another problem was that its membership was at no point cohesive. Yes, they were Catholics, but as you might already be aware, that could mean a lot of things. Some of them were basically just liberals who were willing to throw the workers an extra bone or two and call it Christian charity. Some were full blown, Book of Luke whipped the hell out of the rich types who wanted to break bread with the socialists. And of course, there were all those in between. It really wasn't the most cohesive party to be a part of or to work with. So, by the early part of 1919, you have these more dynamic political movements poised to break through the driftwood of the status quo. The socialists had been building steadily for years to this point, but with the new voting rules, they clearly had been handed keys to a new kind of political power. They knew it, and the segments of society that so loathed them knew it too. The elites were apprehensive, obviously, about having to deal with the plebs at a more equal footing. The fascists, though, positioned themselves in more personal terms. They were the anti-matter to the socialists' matter. The socialists sought out an international brotherhood. The fascists wanted a society based purely on the interests of the Italian people. The socialists wanted the classes to be balanced out. The fascists wanted to pave over class conflicts and redirect all society's energy over to the glorification of the state. The inevitable conflict between the two would dominate Italy for the short term. And I'll be picking up there next week, with the socialists riding a high the nascent fascist party looking for an opportunity to break onto the scene. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.